You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we've got one of my favorite guests back on here, although granted, I could be easily charged with bias in this case. <laughs> but we're going to be talking about the Gospels today. I mean, we have these four books about the life of Jesus, but are they really trustworthy when we go and present them to skeptics of the faith, they have a lot of questions about them. Can we stand to scrutiny, especially with people like Bart Ehrman out here, who say a lot of things that seem to undermine the Gospels? Are they reliable? Well, I've got a guest who's done a lot of research on this lately, and he's one of our favorites to have on here. I have to have him on at least once every year. And that's uh, Mike Lacona. He has a PhD in New Testament studies from the University of Pretoria, which he completed with distinction. He serves as associate professor in theology at Houston Baptist University. He was interviewed by Lee Strobel in his book, The Case of a Real Jesus, and appeared in Strobel's video, The Case for Christ. He is the author of numerous books, including Wild Their Differences in the Gospels, What We Can Learn from Ancient Biography, The Resurrection of Jesus, The New Historiographical Approach, Paul Meets Muhammad, and he's the co-author with Gary Habermas, the award-winning book, The Case for a Resurrection of Jesus, and with William Dembski of Evidence for God, 50 Arguments for Faith from a Bible, History, Philosophy, and Science. He's a member of the Evangelical Theological and Philosophical Societies, the Institute for Biblical Research, and the Society of Biblical Literature. He has spoken on more than 90 university campuses and has appeared on dozens of radio and television programs. And although this isn't found in his bio, I can say also that due to my relationship to his daughter, he's one of two people I could say to it when I start this program with, welcome to the show, Dad. <laughs> well, thanks, son. It's good to be on with you again. Yeah, for those who don't know, Mike's daughter and I have been happily married for six years, and by some miracle with the grace of God, she has not cured me yet. <laughs> Well, that's cool. We're glad to have you as a son-in-law. I'm glad to be part of the family. But Mike, my audience just might not know who you are by some chance. If they don't know who you are, tell us a bit how you got to be doing what you're doing. Well, I became a Christian at the age of 10. Um, but during my time in graduate school, uh, at the very end, I started to develop doubts about the truth of my Christian faith. And it wasn't really anything I had learned it was a matter of thinking, well, you know, I really haven't been exposed very much to other world views. And if I'd been born in Afghanistan, would I be a Muslim? If I'd been born in China, would I be a, 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 an atheist? And I got thinking, you know, I believe I have this relationship with Christ, but, you know, other people think, you know, that their worldviews are, are correct and make similar kind of claims so how do I know what I believe is true rather than just deluding myself? 
And that's what got me involved in apologetics. I wanted to find answers because I figured this is my soul, my eternal soul. And uh, if I only get one chance to get it right, I want to get it right. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we discussed this last time, but I do have to share this kind of funny story that I heard you share on another podcast one time that when you were in college, you had a couple of roommates and such who were interested in apologetics, and you just fell right in love with it immediately, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's something, Nick, because, yeah, when I was in uh, grad school, I had um, – well, when I was in college, I had uh, two undergrad. I had two roommates who were in grad school and they were doing a master's degree in apologetics. And then when I was in grad school, I had uh, two roommates who were doing their master's degree in apologetics. And yeah, I just didn't. Uh, for me, uh, at that point, I didn't care about apologetics. I mean, why do I need to argue for the Christian faith? I know it's true. Um, I just want to grow in my relationship with Christ. That's all I was concerned about at that point. So I didn't really see a need for apologetics. Um, but, you know, that changed when all of a sudden I started to get doubts. Mm. And based on conversations you and I have had, Reverend driving together or anything like that, I think we both share the same mutual love right now with the field, don't we? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we're going to have you on sometime later on also to talk about this book that you have coming out. But tell us about the new book you have coming. Well, it's due out in about a month and a half. Um, why are there differences in the Gospels? What we can understand from or learn from ancient biography. And in that book, I attempt to um, to approach the, the differences in the Gospels from a fresh angle. Um, now, I'm not to say that no one has... Uh, use this angle before for any of the differences in the Gospels. I'm, I'm not at all suggesting that. But well, let's put it this way. Um, w- most scholars today, most biblical scholars, New Testament scholars, uh, agree that the Gospels belong to the genre of Greco-Roman biography, or at least they share a lot in common with Greco-Roman biography. So if that's the case, maybe reading the Gospels within that genre would help us to understand what is going on or what they're saying better. So if I read the book of Revelation as a biography, I'm going to understand it one way, or as a history, I'm going to understand it one way. If I, under, if I read it as a letter, I'm going to have a different understanding. If I read it as um, apocalyptic literature, then I'm going to have a different kind of understanding. So if I want to understand the book of Revelation properly, uh, I'm going to best understand it if I read it within, in view of the genre in which it was written. And same thing with the Gospels, of course. Um, so I wanted to understand Greco-Roman biography better. So what I did was I made a list of all the biographies written on anyone Um, And that were written within, say, 150 years of each side of Jesus. And there are roughly about 90. And of those 90, Plutarch wrote 50 of them. So what I noticed as I got through reading those 50 the first time, I ended up reading through them three times. So as I got through the first time, I noticed that nine of them involved people who lived at the same time. Many of them knew one another and participated in the same events. So as a result, Plutarch is going to tell the same story 
multiple times in multiple biographies. So, for example, the assassination of Julius Caesar is told in his life of Caesar, his life of Cicero, his life of Antony, and his life of Brutus. And there, within those nine, there are, you know, I counted 36 stories that appear two or more times. And, you know, some of those could have been divided further, maybe some of them combined, but I, there were 36 units that I identified. And of those, there are differences in 30 of them when you compare how Plutarch tells the same story. And as I was going through this, and this whole project took me about eight years, as I'm going through this, I, I notice a pattern of the kind of differences that are appearing. And from that, you, you begin to see or infer from that compositional devices, most of which have already been uh, stated by classical scholars, classicists, that this is what ancient authors did. Things like displacement, compression, conflation, transfer, all this. And even some New Testament scholars have posited these things for some of the differences in the Gospels. They just haven't really had any kind of um, outside support to say, okay, this was a compositional device. This is what they were doing, uh, authors were doing back then. So I figured if I could show this is what other ancient authors, biographers of the Greco-Roman period were doing, then if we see these same kinds of things going on in the Gospels, um, that would make a whole lot of sense then. Uh, so, and in fact, if they are writing according to the genre of that day, and we would expect them to do that, just like every other piece of biblical literature was written according to a genre contemporary to their day, be it Old Testament, New Testament, we, and we wouldn't expect anything different from the Gospels. Um, reading the Gospels in view of compositional devices that we also see going on in other ancient literature of that period could shed light on why there are differences. So that's the approach I take in the book. Um, again, I examine 36 different um, pericopes or stories within Plutarch's lives. And then I turn to the Gospels and I think I examine 19. I found a whole lot more. But I took 19 of the clearest ones, the most important ones, uh, to illustrate the um, compositional devices that I saw in Plutarch and that classical scholars do uh, tell us that other ancient authors of that time were using. And I apply those in the Gospels as well. And, and uh, I, I think it was a fruitful study, of quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, we're not going to ask a lot of questions about that right now because, you know, we're going to save it when the book comes out. But which, uh, Mike has already said, he's going to come on the show sometime to talk about that book. But the price right now on Amazon is twenty eight eighty three, and it's available for pre-order right now. And in fact, judging by the product details, it looks like it's going to come out on December 19th. Does that sound right to you? Oh, I thought it was December 1st. Now they're saying the 19th? Maybe. I, I can't tell sure, but under a publisher, it says December 19th, but it could be out on the 1st. So okay. we were just suspect sometime December. So if uh, you're listening and you've got an apologist or a family, this is the kind of gift I'd love to see in their Christmas stocking. <laughs> well, also, I'd say for someone who's a serious student of the Bible and, you know, someone who um, have has noticed the differences in the Gospels and wonder what's going on. Um, maybe they're troubled by them. Maybe they're not troubled by them. And they know someone else who is troubled by them. Um, you know, this could be a book 
that they benefit from, or if they just, yeah, they just want to be able to read the Gospels, um, you know, and, and gain a greater understanding of them because they're able to read them within, understanding them within the genre in which they were written, um, I think they'd enjoy the book. Now, we're talking about gospel reliability today, and your interest in this largely started with a debate you had recently with Bart Ehrman. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, what well, actually started years ago, around the same time as it did with uh, the gospel differences, and um, it was shortly after, um, I think, my second debate with Bart Ehrman, uh, which was in 2009, that happened up in Charlotte. No, the one I met you at, Nick. <laughs> well, you thought so, I was an atheist. That's right. <laughs> so um, I, I was teaching a graduate class and uh, on the resurrection of Jesus. And a number of the students said that they could see that Jesus rose from the dead. They thought I definitely won that debate with Ehrman. But it had troubled them that Ehrman had raised all these objections against the Gospels and I didn't bother to answer them in a debate. And I, I said, well, you know, you can understand I'm not going to get sidetracked on that. My argument for the resurrection uh, did not depend on the Gospels. I think we can get there uh, through Paul and other sources. Uh, Paul, of course, is earlier than the Gospels. And um, so, you know, if we get there through Paul, then we can show that Jesus rose from the dead and Christianity is true without even touching the gospel. So even if all the things that Ehrman claimed in the gospels were true, it wouldn't matter pertaining to the resurrection. The students understood that, but it rocked their faith in the gospels and in the veracity of scripture, uh, all these objections that Ehrman brought up. So I developed a lecture from that called the ABCs, D's and E's of defending the gospels in which I answered Ehrman's five major objections, and that concerned authorship, bias, contradictions, dating, and eyewitnesses of gospel in the Gospels. Um, but that really just answers the objections against the historical reliability of the Gospels. Of course, it, it doesn't mean that the Gospels are historically reliable. You still have to build a positive case for that. And so over the last several years, just here and there, I was piecemealing different uh, areas and looking into the more and more like authorship, spending time on that. Of course, the contradictions, another thing, but authorship, dating of the Gospels, looking at whether there was eyewitness testimony uh, contained in the Gospels and, and all of this. But I'd piecemealed it. I wasn't ready to give any kind of a positive case for the historical reliability of the Gospels. And then a year ago, October, a year ago, I think it was, thebestschools.org contacted Ehrman and I and asked if we would be willing to have a written uh, focused civil dialogue, I think they called it, on the matter of are the Gospels historically reliable accounts of the life of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I, I was thinking at that point, you know, maybe two, three years from now, I still need to put some more stuff together. But, you know, then I got thinking this could be a good chance to uh, motivate me to just go ahead and put that together now. And then I could throw it out there to Ehrman, some of my arguments and see how he'd respond. And he'd be able to point out some weaknesses. And then I could, you know, reassess some of those things. So I agreed to do it. He agreed to do it. And we did this written dialogue on the matter with um, an interview of each of us, lengthy uh, interview, opening statement, 
and I think there were, yeah, two rebuttals um, and for each of us. And it occurred from February through May. So it required a, a bit of work. Um, so it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And so I was able to crystallize a lot of my thinking. And, uh, you know, I was really pleased with the way things went. So that's how it went. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're discussing this, which, by the way, that, is that supposed to be turned into a book? A lot of people are wondering that. It is. Uh, thebestschools.org has told me they uh, got had a guy from Baylor who wrote a forward to it. I don't know if it's been turned in yet. And, yeah, they are making a book out of it. I don't know when it's going to be out. I would guess within the next few months. Yeah, we look forward to that. I just checked. I can't find it on Amazon yet, so give it time here. <laughs> when we're talking about this, why don't we start with a simple question. Where have people doing evangelism or say believe the gospel and such? Is that what we're talking about when we say the gospels or is it something different or is it the same thing? Well, no, I'd say it's different. And, um, you know, when we talk about the gospels, we could talk about them as, you know, these four biographies of Jesus. We could refer to them as a gospel using a big G. When we talk about the gospel message, um, that not necessarily all Jesus preaching and the stories about him, but the message that with Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection is an inauguration of the kingdom of, of heaven. Here on earth, our ability to have a relationship with him that begins right now because the kingdom of God to that extent is in us. And, of course, then in a different sense, we will be enjoying the kingdom of God in heaven someday. Um, so in that sense, we could just call that the gospel with a small g. So the gospel with a small g would be a g, small g would be the gospel message. Gospel with a big g would be the biography of Jesus, uh, the four of them that we find in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Now, you said earlier that they are Greco-Roman biographies, of course, some of your critics like Norman Geisler have said, why would they be Greco-Roman biographies? Why would God use a pagan form of writing in order to reach his people? I mean, is it really plausible to say they're Greco-Roman biographies? Are you often left feared or is this one has got some serious scholarly support? Oh, well, the majority of scholars today, even evangelical scholars, agree that they're Greco-Roman biographies. And just because they're Greco-Roman doesn't mean they're pagan in a, in a negative sense, um, you know, uh, you, most scholars would say that Luke is writing history and he's writing uh, like a Greco-Roman history in that sense. So that doesn't mean it's pagan. It's just according to a certain genre. You say, well, why not Jewish biography? Well, for some reason, uh, unknown to us, Jewish historians were not writing or the Jews of Jesus day were not writing biographies of their sages. Or at least if they did, none of them have survived, and we have no hints that any of them were writing them in those days. Again, we don't know why this is the case, but um, so if, if they're going to write according to a genre, a biographical genre of that time, it would appear that Greco-Roman biography was the only game in town. And Richard Burridge, Craig Keener, others, David Awney, uh, Charles Talbert, uh, you know, they've, they've written on the qualities, the characteristics of Greco-Roman biography. And, you know, there's probably like 10 different qualities of Greco-Roman biography. But just a few of them 
would be something like um, in biography, you have an emphasis on the main character rather than an era, an event, or a government. Uh, so like in the book of Acts, that's a history. It doesn't focus on a main person. It focuses on an era or the history of the first three decades of the Christian church. So you, you've got several main characters in it. You could say you've got Peter, you've got Paul, um, you've got, uh, what's that? Stephen. Um, when you come to a biography, though, the focus is on a main character, one main character. You'll have some others, like in the life of Julius Caesar, whether it's by Plutarch or Suetonius, you still have the main character, Caesar. It's going to mention others in there, Cicero and Cato the Younger and Antony and Brutus, Cassius, people like that. But Julius Caesar is going to be the main character. Everything centers around him. And it's the same thing with Greco-Roman biography, of course. Uh, any biography, you're going to have the emphasis on a main character. Second, uh, in Greco-Roman biography, you're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the person's childhood. In Greco-Roman biography, there's a little bit of space that is devoted to the family line or uh, the person's uh, ancestry. And then they're going to jump right into the person's public life as an adult, whether it be their military exploits or their political exploits. That's what they're going to go into, typically speaking. So a number of people are going to be, they have thought over the years, well, why don't the Gospels speak much about Jesus's childhood? And that's exactly why. Yeah. I mean, they're just Greco-Roman biographies and they just they talk a little about Jesus lineage, you know, so it either gives his genealogy, as we find in Matthew and Luke or in Mark. It talks about, you know, from Isaiah, the prophet, a voice crying of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the paths of our God. And it's John the Baptist who's preparing the way for God, who is Jesus um, or in John's gospel. The word was with God. The word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it talks about the ancestry. Jesus is divine. He's the son of God. And then boom, in all four gospels, it jumps right into the inauguration of his public life, except for one story in the gospel of Luke when Jesus was 12 years old and found in the temple. Other than that, though, we, we have very, very little about Jesus' childhood. And that is standard practice of Greco-Roman biography. Um, in Greco-Roman biography, the main subject's character was to be illuminated through their words and their deeds. And that's exactly what we find in the Gospels as well. And the length of Greco-Roman biography was typically between 10 and 20,000 words. And that's what we find with the Gospels. You have Mark on the lower end at a little over 11,000 words, and you have Luke on the upper end at a little over 19,000 words, or about 19,500 words. So, I mean, those are just four. There are more uh, characteristics of Greco-Roman biography, but that's, those are just a few of the reasons why the majority of scholars look at it today and say that's the genre of the Gospels. They're going to have to be writing according to some genre. I mean, it, before they thought they were Greco-Roman biographies, they thought that they were a unique genre, uh, but most scholars don't believe that now. And again, if, if the, the other biblical literature was using genre, that was available to them in that day. For example, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. 
And first Enoch was written before Revelation. So, and that was apocalyptic literature. So you've got these different genres and the biblical literature is using genres contemporary to the biblical authors. So we would be, we should be surprised then if the gospels were written according to a unique genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Greco-Roman biography just makes the most sense here. And that's why most scholars think that. Yeah, we could also say that Paul's epistles are written according to the Greco-Roman rhetorical style of writing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mean there's no Jewish flavor in these. Of course, there's Jewish flavor. And in fact, in some cases, it's like a hybrid genre. Um, so like uh, the Gospel of Luke, a number of scholars like Ben Witherington think that the Gospel of Luke is not biography, but that it's history, and it's just part one of his two-part history. Um, and the Gospel of Luke does have some traits in it that, you know, lend it being history rather than biography. However, the same could be said about Plutarch's life of Julius Caesar. Um, that reads more like history because it's not uh, trying to illuminate Caesar's character. The focus is more on what kind of things did he do that gained the popularity of the common person? How did he gain that popularity and become a dictator? Uh, Rome's uh, dictator and beginning the fall of the Roman Republic. Um, but still, despite that, you've got, you know, virtually all classical scholars would agree that that's a biography written by Plutarch. It's just hybrid with history at that point. So there are some fuzzy lines when it comes, blurred lines when it comes to some of the genre, but most scholars do think that they're Greco-Roman biographies, or at least we could say they share a lot in in common with Greco-Roman biography. Now, let me give a little bit of a clarification here. You say uh, that Luke, for instance, is history rather than biography. There was no idea of putting a radical disjunction here that biographies aren't history and history's not biography, right? That's correct. Uh, Again, uh, like... If it's a history, it is focusing on an event like a war or a government or an era. Uh, So the history of the Peloponnesian War by uh, Thucydides in the 4th century BC, that would be a history. It's not focusing on a main character. It's focusing on the event of the war, which was longer than the Vietnam War. Um, A biography is a historical account of a person and the life and what they said and what they did. But it does have a little bit different objective behind it. It's going to tell about that main character and what that person was like. Were they good? Were they evil? What was their strengths? What were their weaknesses? And it wants to do that because in biography, you would paint these portraits of the main character in order to educate the reader so that they would know certain qualities to emulate or to eschew. That was the purpose of ancient biography. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of pushback, too. You said that the Jews didn't really write biographies. Don't we have the life of Moses from Philo? Yeah, um, that is true. But I think it was um, – I'm trying to think who it was. I can't remember his name. He's a Jewish scholar. And he even says that most scholars today, even though it's called the life of Moses, most scholars would say that that is not an actual biography. Now, I haven't read the life of Moses, so I I can't comment on that. 
Um, so you could say that might be perhaps the only exception. But then, of course, Philo was a Hellenistic Jew. He wrote a lot um, with the Greco-Roman um, mindset. You know, he didn't think in a lot of Jewish terms in the same way as someone like Josephus or some of the other Jews in his day. He was an Hellenist. He was a Hellenistic Jew. So under heavy Greek influence. So even if his life of Moses was a, a biography written by a Jew, it wouldn't necessarily mean a Jewish biography. But then again, it would have been written on one of their sages. So that would have been perhaps the only exception. But again, I wish I could remember that Jewish scholar. He's a prominent Jewish scholar, too. Neusner or Vermesh? Or- yeah, Jakob Neusner. That's him. All right. Now, when we're talking about reliability also, I think we need to make a distinction. We're not arguing against inerrancy at this point. That's not our intention ever, but inerrancy and reliability are two different things. And why are we focusing on reliability? Yeah, that's a great question and good observation, Nick. Um, you know, when we come to Tacitus's Annals of Rome, uh, scholars of the classical and post-classical periods would say that's historically reliable. He's he's pretty accurate. And we learn a lot about ancient Rome from Tacitus's Annals. Mm-hmm. But it's not divinely inspired and it's not inerrant. We know that there are errors in it. We know that Tacitus also had certain biases. So it doesn't have to be perfect in order to be historically reliable. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, let's consider the Psalms in the Old Testament. If if I were to ask you, are the Psalms historically reliable? Well, you'd think for a moment, then you'd say, well, that really doesn't apply to the Psalms because of the genre. Exactly. But we would say that the Psalms are divinely inspired and inerrant. So the point is you can have something that's divinely inspired. You can have something that's infallible, authoritative, inerrant but it's not historically reliable. You can have something that's historically reliable, but not inerrant. And when we come to the Gospels and the Book of Acts, you could look at that and say, here we have some candidates that could be both historically reliable, divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative. Um, So the point I would make is you could point out potential errors in the Gospels, potential contradictions in the Gospels, biases, that doesn't mean they're not historically reliable. Mm-hmm. Now, you can argue for inerrancy. You can argue for divine inspiration. Neither of those are provable, of course. Um, my concern in my, in my present research after the gospel differences and what I'm working on now is historically reliable. What does it actually mean to say something is historically reliable? And can we consider the gospels to be historically reliable? Mm-hmm. I think one of the mistakes of our skeptics make, and then in turn, our Christians who focus way too much on inerrancy make, is that it becomes a sort of all or nothing game. If there was one error, there might as well be a thousand errors, and maybe none of it's reliable. We don't do that with any document of history, do we? No, that's just that's just poor thinking, and it's it's rigid fundamentalism. Whether you're an atheist or a Christian, it's just. A, a brittle way of thinking, an all or nothing. The house of cards does not collapse if you lose inerrancy, if there is an error in the in the Gospels or in the Bible. Mm-hmm. You lose inerrancy, or you lose at least some form of inerrancy. Um, but you don't lose historically reliable. And once you 
you know, come to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. You know, I looked at that for years, as you know, and once I came to the conclusion that historically speaking, Jesus quite probably rose from the dead, or everything else theologically at that point becomes uh, peripheral. It becomes of secondary importance. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about the Gospels as we have them right at the start. We open up books, a Bible, we have these four books right here, and there are so many words in them. But even there, we have a problem. This was written maybe about 1900 years or so ago. Maybe the words are different. I mean, we've all heard of things like translation of a translation of a translation, and it's all like a telephone game. And, you know, the Bible's gone through so many changes over time, hasn't it? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's just, that is just ignorance of, you know, when we talk about um, textual criticism. And this is something that you've probably already spoken about with Dan Wallace or had him on, but you know, the textual criticism we have, I think as of right now, 5,839 Greek manuscripts of the new Testament literature, uh, somewhere between nine and 15 of them are dated within 150 years of the originals. And even someone like Bart Ehrman will acknowledge that we can get back to an, a, a text, which is pretty close to the originals. We're, we're getting essentially what it says. We can trust what it says, that it's not essentially different than what the originals said. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's just one of the, the great benefits of textual criticism there. It's not a matter of we have our English translations or, you know, uh, something that has morphed over. I mean, the, the translations differ because we update them for l- linguistic purposes, our, the English language now is different than it was when the King James Version first came out in 1611. In fact, the King James Version was updated in, I think, the 19th century uh, because the language had already become too archaic by that time. Uh, so the King James Version that people read today isn't even the 1611 version. It's something from the um, um, 1800s, I believe. So actually gone through a number of revisions. The original KJV even had the Apocrypha in it. <laughs> Yeah. And the original King James Version was only based on, I think, seven manuscripts, six or seven manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, the the New Testament, that is. And the oldest one uh, was written, I think, 900 years after the originals, the autographs. So, um, you know, today we have more manuscripts of the Greek New Testament written within 150 years of the original uh, a multiplicity of manuscripts written within 150 years of the original than the King James Version had for the New Testament um, in all. They only had six or seven. Now we've got, like I said, uh, nine to 15 of them that are written within 150 years of the original and 5,839 total. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone's interested, by the way, uh, Mike spoke about Dan Wallace being on the show. If you're interested in that, Back in 2014, April 19th, Dan Wallace came on talking about the textual reliability of the New Testament. And frankly, for evangelical scholarship, you're not going to find anyone better, I think, in that field than Dan Wallace. That's true. That's true. Now, when we open up these Gospels, going back to them, there is, I think even Bart Ehrman would concede a lot of what you've said there, that most of the 
textural problems we have really aren't as big as people think they are. But yeah, he would. When we open them up, we find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. But these authors never identify themselves in the text. And we regularly hear skeptics say, the Gospels are anonymous. The Gospels are anonymous. Is this a problem? No, because a lot of ancient literature was that way. Plutarch, all of his 50 biographies that have survived are anonymous. His name doesn't appear in any of them. Um, Plato, Porphyry, Galen, um, these are all anonymous. And I mean, they're ma- it's major literature of that period, and they're all anonymous. But we don't question the authorship of them because they're attested well out by outside sources. And we've got that with the Gospels as well. In fact, we have better evidence for the traditional authorship of our four New Testament Gospels than we have for Plutarch's lives. And I don't know of any classical scholar who questions whether Plutarch wrote those 50 biographies that have survived. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're asking about this authorship, though, a lot of people would say, why do you think the gospel writers didn't identify themselves? Well, we don't know that they didn't, actually. I mean, the way things were written back then, if they were written on a scroll, and the gospels, the original gospels, were probably written on scrolls, you would find the the title of it on the outside of the scroll rather than the inside of the scroll. So it could have been on the outside and it just wasn't on the inside, you know, to begin with, because they wouldn't have necessarily needed a title like, you know, we have in modern literature. Isn't that Martin Hangar's theory? That's pretty close to that. Yep. I mean, he, he doesn't have any problems thinking that the originals, uh, probably had the titles on them somewhere. Mm. Uh, I also tell people when I'm talking about this, they say, yeah, do you really think this scroll shows up one day at a church has got a gospel and says, who wrote this? Huh? We don't know, but it looks pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the fact is, when it comes to the the traditional authorship of the gospels, the early church fathers, when they commented on it, were pretty unanimous on who wrote them. Everybody agreed, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, there is some dispute or debate over, uh, you know, what the early church said about the authorship of the Gospel of John, as Richard Baucom has brought to our attention. He thinks, you know, he interprets Papias as saying that the elder John, a minor, who was a minor disciple, um, that he was the author of John's Gospel instead of John, the son of Zebedee. That's how he interprets Papias. Now, some disagree with him on that, but I mean, he, he could be right. I don't know if he's right, but he could be right on that. In that case, even if he is right, that is the pretty much the only time that. And I think later on, uh, Dan Wallace had corrected me, I think. And he had told me after I lectured on this once, he said, uh, no, someone also said Serinthus uh, was the author of John's gospel. And some Gnostics said Serinthus was the author of it. But other than those, those two instances, uh, that one instance and then a possible instance in Papias, it's unanimous, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's got to provide some pretty decent weight toward the traditional authorship. Yeah, I often think this whole thing about them not being named is pretty much just an excuse a lot of times, because you'll go over to the pastoral epistles, for instance, and they are claimed clearly to be written by Paul, 
And so, oh, no, 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 they're not written by Paul. And I seriously doubt the law of skepticism in the New Testament. We did have on the very front the gospel according to Matthew. They, they weren't bow down to me and say, well, by God, that settles it. Matthew wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's correct. But it is the unanimous testimony. It's just you would think if someone else wrote, wrote it, you would have some claims to the contrary. But nobody disputed it. And I also think that if we were just making up offers of the accounts, we wouldn't make up the offers that we have. I mean, Mark, for instance, who could be seen as a mama's boy who went back home early on in the first gospel mission between Paul and Barnabas, and eventually led to a split between the two of them. You wouldn't go with something like this. I mean, especially since Mark is supposed to be testimony of Peter, you just say, where's the gospel of Peter? But the church didn't do his face said Mark. Yeah. 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 I mean, there, I think there's some decent arguments for the traditional authorship of the gospels, um, especially for Mark and Luke. And I, um, I, I, I'm convinced John, the son of Zebedee wrote the gospel of John. I, I think the article, the arguments provided by especially Keener, but also Blomberg are pretty persuasive. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Matthew, he's the most difficult, I think. And I don't really know what's going on there. I, I think because the early church was unanimous that Matthew was the author, I think that lends great probability that Matthew played a large role mm-hmm. in the penning of that gospel. But it's really difficult to – I mean, there are some challenges because Papias, that same author, the first one who talks about the traditional authorship of the Gospels – He's probably writing in the first decade of the second century or around that time. Um, he says that Matthew was originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic. And people who are real experts in the Greek language, people like Dan Wallace, people like D.A. Carson, they will say that um, the Gospel of Matthew is not translation Greek. It doesn't read. The Greek in it is not the kind of Greek that we would expect if they were translating it from Aramaic or Hebrew into Greek. And in fact, Carson and Moo in their New Testament introduction go as far as to say Papias, they conclude that Papias was just simply wrong to say that Matthew was written originally in Hebrew or Aramaic. Well, Wallace comes back and he says, um, at least I don't think he's got it in print, but he's told me this, that one thing that he thinks is possible is, you know, you've got these five discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, like the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse. And that perhaps what Papias is referring to, because he's talking about the uh, Lagia to Jesu, the sayings or teachings of Jesus, it could mean that Papias was referring to a couple of these um, discourses of Jesus that these were originally written in Hebrew or Aramaic. They got translated into Greek, and then an editor, perhaps under the supervision of Matthew, took these, then combined it with a lot of material from Mark that he used as his primary source, and then also some special other sources, what they would call the special M source. And that's the Gospel of Matthew that we have today. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Some have even said it might even be Q, that Matthew wrote Q, and that's what um, what Papias was referring to. Of course, by saying <clears throat> that uh, 
Matthew or anyone else is the author, it doesn't mean they sat down and wrote every word. It could mean they were the editor or the main source. Sure, absolutely. I mean, gosh, you got Paul in Corinthians, and you say, you know, there's co-authorship there. He and Sosthenes. Um, or you've got uh, Romans, the crown jewel of Paul's writings. And in chapter 16, verse 22, it says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, send you my greetings. Well, he's obviously the scribe, but given Paul's writing style and his other undisputed letters, it would appear that Tertius probably did some really nice editing um, and crafting that letter together. Mm-hmm. Hey, well, now let's talk a little bit about dating. And we don't mean picking the girl up and opening up the car door for her and everything like that. But that would be a separate show. We're talking instead about the dating of the Gospels. And a lot of people say, geez, these, these Gospels are written so late. I mean, you, maybe like 40 to 70 years after the events, couldn't they have been written down sooner? Doesn't that call their reliability into question? Yeah, well, I, I don't think it does. I mean, would it be nice if they were written down within two years of the events? You bet. You know, like the recent uh, autobiography of Steve Jobs, you know, was written. It came out uh, what right after his death, within a few months of his death. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty close. But, you know, when we're talking about the Gospels and, and the dates in which they're written, they're pretty good by ancient standards. Uh, a lot of Plutarch's lives. Uh, were written hundreds of years later. His life of Alexander and uh, Thesis were written 800 to 1,000 years later. Of course, he doesn't claim that those are historically reliable, but he does claim that his biographies of Caesar and Crassus and Brutus, Antony, and so forth, that those are trustworthy because they were written within our current period, he says, and he had good sources available to him. Well, those are written within 140 years of the event. The Gospels are written within 35 to 65 years is the the typical dating that is assigned to them today. It might even been earlier than that in some cases. Um, So when you look at these things, it's not too long. Uh, The Gospel of Mark is thought to have been written 35 to 40 years later. Well, go to the Vietnam War. There's a lot of Vietnam War vets, and they can tell us about the war today. It happened, you know, a few decades ago. Well, that's you take the gospel of Mark at 35 to 40 years. That's even closer to today than the Vietnam War, the end of the Vietnam War. If you look at the gospel of John, which is typically thought to be 65 years within 65 years of Jesus, um, 70 at the very most, maybe even a lot earlier than that, but 70 years at the very most. Well, that's closer than the end of World War II. And there are World War II veterans around today. There's a guy at my church. His name's Jack. He's in his 90s, and he flew on B-29s in World War II. He can tell you all about it. So um, do we wish we had eyewitness testimony from two, three, four, five years after the events? Of course, that would be – that's better than 35 to 70 years after the events, but – if we're getting eyewitness testimony, that's what's important. Mm-hmm. I remember reading once Richard Carrier saying something about comparing the resurrection of Jesus to the crossing of a Rubicon, how he had so much better evidence. He says, all the great historians of the age, rabbis, I'm thinking names, one, <clears throat> ones like 
Appian, Spratonius, Cassius Deo, Plutarch, and I'm sure you can already see the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're writing later, and I mean, Suetonius is considered good. Cassius Dio is is uh, decent. Um, you know, some of those, you got Plutarch, he mentions it. I think there's only four to six sources that mentions Caesar's crossing the Rubicon, and they're written much later, I think, what, 65 to 150 years after the crossing. 65 to 100, and in fact, their earliest source begins with our latest source, <laughs> You know, we got our four gospels. We got Paul and all the early Christian literature that that mentions it. So, um, I think we have better evidence for the crossing for the resurrection than Caesar's crossing the Rubicon. I think one of the problems people have with this also is we live in what's called a Gutenberg society, where we're moving very quickly into a digital society. Where right now, if I wanted to, I could get really industrious and write a thousand words a day, and at the end of a month have about 30,000, 31,000 words, depending on what, how long a month it is. And I could get that opera into an ebook, and it could be delivered to all the world very, very easily. And back when the printing press comes out, you can copy a book over and over. It seems so simple, we take it for granted, but the ancient world wasn't like that, was it? That's correct. That is correct. You had 10% literacy, perhaps, um, maybe a little bit more in Palestine. Some say less, some say more. Um, so because of that, the, the great amount of illiteracy, oral tradition is what was really important. And they had checks and balances in place to see that Certain traditions were preserved in their integrity. We can see a lot of that going on in the New Testament, which is pretty cool when we look at that. Um, and it was a lot of these oral traditions that made their way into the Gospels, the oral traditions, as well as just simply um, eyewitness recollections of the events. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're talking about the dating of the Gospels, that's fine. Like, why do we date Matthew, Mark, and Luke there was a lot of debate on those, especially girls. A lot of evangelicals want to date them before 70 AD. A lot of others, including probably some evangelicals, want to date after 70 AD. What are the reasons here? Well, you know, a lot would say that um, someone would date the Gospels after 70 AD because that's when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And since Jesus predicted the temple's destruction, Um, If they reject the supernatural predictive powers, then they'd say, well, those things were just redacted and added after 70. That's, you know, that's why you have. But that might be to an extent, uh, true to an extent. And that's probably why some scholars date them that way. But it's not always the case. You'll have some like Raymond Brown, the, the famous Catholic scholar, New Testament scholar who, you know, dated the Gospels later, some of them later. And he believed in the resurrection of Jesus. He believed in the deity of Jesus, his predictive powers. You've got Craig Keener and Ben Witherington, both conservative evangelical scholars. And, you know, they don't follow that kind of line of reasoning uh, that some evangelicals use. Like, for example, Witherington, he dates uh, the book of Acts, uh, I think, around the year 80 
and Luke just a little before that. And uh, if you were to bring up and say, but the, the book of Acts doesn't mention the temple's destruction, you'd think it would mention it in there. So it would have had to have been written prior to 70, and of course the gospel, the prequel, uh, before then. And Witherington would reply and say, well, the, the book of Acts is not a gospel. It's not something that's going to complete and tie everything together. It's a history of the Holy Spirit's work within the first three decades of the church. Um, it's not a biography of Paul or Peter. That's why it just ends with Paul in prison. And we don't know what happens after that. It doesn't mean that he was writing this while Paul was still alive before he died in 64 or 65. Um, it just means he was writing about the Holy Spirit's work in the first three decades of the church. I think Keener puts the book of Acts around the year 70. He's open to it being earlier, but he puts it around 70. Now, I look at these guys. These are strong evangelicals who've written significant commentaries uh, on the book of Acts, especially Keener. <laughs> with oh, his, oh, Keener wrote this tiny little thing. Don't you yeah. think that? I mean, he's got 624 pages of introductory information himself. He's got as many pages just introducing the book of Acts and talking about who wrote it and when did this author write it and to who, who was Theophilus and about the, you know, what are we to expect when we come to these speeches in the book of Acts? And do they re, actually recall actual speeches that Paul and Stephen and Peter and others preached? Um, so he, he devotes as much space to answering those questions as I do to my entire case for the resurrection of Jesus in my large book. So, I mean, Keener really knows his stuff when it comes to Acts. And he knows all the arguments, and he's an evangelical. He'd probably like to put it early. But, you know, he looks at the evidence, and he says he thinks it's written around the year 70. So um, I don't think we have to worry too much about those you know, early dating. If we get early dating, that's great. But um, as long as you get eyewitness testimony who is uh, that is included in there, I think that's what's important. And if anyone's interested, Craig Keener was on our show talking about the Book of Acts back on December 5th of last year. And if anyone's amused to hear this, uh, when I was meeting some of my professors for a master's project I'm working on right now, one of them actually went to university with Keener while he was working on his PhD and he told me he said the big joke between all of us was we all theorized that Craig Keener had his PhD written before he showed up. Yeah. <laughs> that guy's amazing. You know, there's Craig Keener and then there's the rest of us mortals. He's he's just amazing. And I love the guy. Not only is he brilliant, but he's so humble. And the guy walks with God. He's he's a very godly man. Mm-hmm. Now I also like to point out when we're talking about the dating and such that uh, I I interact with a mythicist a lot. God help me for doing that one. But you would say, well, here you have Jesus, this son of God figure and such, and no one writes about him for so long. And say, well, look at people like Hannibal or Queen Boudicca or the German general Arminius. And these figures are written about until decades later as well. And these were all well-known figures of their day. Well, could someone write a – you're correct, Nick. And, you know, if 35 to 65 years is too long, then that's to say that no one could write an accurate history of the Vietnam War, the Korean War, or World War II at this point because they're within the same kind of time periods. 
And of course, that's foolish. If someone wrote, if you had a qualified historian who wrote a history of any of those wars right now, we'd say that's fine. Uh, they're based on eyewitness testimony, on documents and things like that. So um, they'd be plenty qualified. If it's okay with you, um, could we go back to something that you mentioned a few moments ago? You were talking about, you know, uh, it's not a Gutenberg age. Uh, back then, it wasn't a Gutenberg age or a digital age. And what kind of implications might this have? I think that that there's some interesting things that we can point out here, and that would be the authors of the Gospels and the early Christian apostles were certainly capable of recalling stories accurately. So not only are they writing, um, you know, within a reasonable period of time, but when we understand memory and how it works, I know there's conflicting accounts on memory these days and uh, the trend among some scholars like Bart Ehrman and some others is to try to undermine the reliability of memory, which undermines all of history, if that is true. Um, and I don't think most people would accept what someone like Ehrman is saying. I think he's going to receive some bad reviews for his most recent book. And rightly so. I think he's just flat out wrong in a lot of ways. Um, but I think the Gospels, uh, their, their authors and their sources were certainly capable of recalling stories accurately. So let me just point out when we come to something like 9-11, all right, a lot of us recall what that day was like. And we remember where we were at. Um, and in fact, I say this in my lectures, how many of you remember 9-11? A lot of people raise their hands. Of course, in college campuses today, you know, we're getting so far away now from 9-11 because it was 15 years ago. A lot of college students don't remember it, or maybe they remember the event happening, but they don't remember anything about it because they were like three years old at the time, you know? Um, so, but a lot of us remember 9-11 and we can even remember what the weather was. Do you remember what the weather was like on that day, Nick? Well, not too much because it doesn't vary too much in Oxford, but I do remember it was a very clear day. It wasn't rainy. And the main thing I remember about weather was so much was going out and looking up and remembering that they'd said no more flights today. And there was not a single plane in the sky and how odd that was. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it was clear. It was sunny and it was that way all over the country. And it's something that, you know, I can remember even the weather on 9-11, 15 years ago. But if I asked you what the weather was like on 9-11 this year, one month ago, I'll tell you, I couldn't remember. And if I asked you, uh, maybe you could, because you can figure out some stuff on particular days. You got a good memory in, in some ways. But if I asked you what the weather was like on 9-11 in 2015, would you remember? No, if you asked me over what it was like last week, I'd have a hard time remembering, because I don't care about it. <laughs> exactly. Well, why is it that we can remember the weather on a particular day 15 years ago, but not one month ago? And it's because it was a huge event and it burned those details into our memory. A lot of these details into our memory. We may not get all the details and remember them accurately, but we're going to have a very good recollection of those kinds of events. Now, about a year ago, year and a half ago, Debbie and I were watching Vietnam in HD. And um, in the very first episode, there was a guy named Joe Galloway, who was a combat reporter in Vietnam. If you remember the movie, We Were Soldiers, uh, that starred uh, 
Mel Gibson and Sam Elliott um, in it. Um, th- that was a true story. And uh, it was a story about some special forces who went over to Vietnam and in November 1965. And they, for four days in November, engaged North Vietnamese forces, the North Vietnamese Army. It was the first significant engagement between the two armies in the Vietnam War. And Galloway was the, the combat reporter that was there, if you remember him in the movie. And he and Lieutenant Colonel Hal Moore, who was played by Gibson, portrayed by Gibson in the movie, they wrote a book about the experience. It, called, it was titled Once We Were Soldiers, and that became the main source for the movie We Were Soldiers. Well, they endured tremendous combat and casualties over those four days. Um, they lost, I think, 251 American soldiers and uh, another 245, I believe, were injured. And when you watch that movie or read the book, you just see that those events were just it's something that would leave a lasting impact. Well, in that very first episode, Galloway was talking and there was a one minute segment and it's like, well, that is profound. And I, I copied it and I will show that in my lecture on the historical reliability of the Gospels because it just brings a point home real strongly and clearly. And in there, he says, you know, when he left that X-ray zone battlefield, um, he was impressed because men gave their lives so that he might live. And you could see this had deeply impacted him. And he goes on to say that when you go through an experience like this, you live it, you experience it, and it will be with you all of your days, he said. And I got to think that if you were a disciple who had walked with Jesus for one and a half to three years, that you had seen him give sight to the blind, give hearing to the deaf, uh, allowed the lame, the disabled to get up and walk, that he could walk on water, raise the dead, that he's crucified. You see him a few days after risen from the dead. You're able to touch him and converse with him. Um, these are the kinds of things they would leave an impression on his disciples every bit as deep and lasting as those four days left on Joe Galloway. So these things would be something that you would remember. And then you have to look and you say, well, the messages, the sermons that Jesus preached, I wouldn't expect that Jesus would have had a new sermon for every town and village he entered. He probably had a dozen sermons. I'm I'm just taking a guess there, but he probably had maybe a dozen or so sermons. And he said them over and 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 over. And his disciples heard that same stuff over and over and over and over and over. You and I have heard and and viewed so many of Bill Craig's debates that there are a lot of times that we can repeat his arguments verbatim and even say them with the same voice inflection he gives at a certain time because we've heard it so many times. And we haven't heard them nearly as many times as the disciples would have heard Jesus preach. And then remember, he sent them out to preach. And you've heard the best way to learn something is to teach it. So, you know, maybe some of them even took notes. Maybe the notes of one of those disciples is the cue source we have. And so they take these notes, perhaps they go out in twos. They're able to correct one another and they preach the same message as they'd heard Jesus preach multiple times. 
Now they preach them over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And then they come back, they debrief with Jesus, and then they hear him teach the same messages over and over and over and over and over. And then after he gives them the Great Commission, leaves them, they go out and for the next several decades preach those same messages countless times. So it's not as though they heard this teaching of Jesus once and then decades later they're recording it. It's after they've heard these hundreds and heard and preached the same messages hundreds and hundreds of times. And after decades of doing it, they write these things down. And so not only would Jesus' deeds have been quite memorable, so would his teachings. They, the gospel authors and their sources were absolutely in a position where they were capable of reporting Jesus' words and his deeds in an accurate manner. And that goes toward the historical reliability of the Gospels. I'd like to remind everyone that you're listening to the Deeper Worlds podcast. Right now we've got with us Mike Lacona talking about gospel reliability. But if you're here next week, Mike's going to be back again. And he's going to be with his friend and mentor, Gary Habermas. And we are going to be playing Grill Christian on the resurrection. I'm gathering questions all over the internet from people who want to ask these two men one question on the resurrection. We're going to see how they stack up. And as always, when I do this kind of thing, they have no idea what the questions are going to be until they get in the hot seat. So we'll see how it is. Looking forward to it, Mike? <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun. You know, I'm also thinking when you're talking about this, that I mean, with a global event like 9-11, you can have a lot of people remember that because we can all talk to each other and such, but there are some events that are more local that you can remember very well because of what happened. I mean, for instance, I'm sure for a lot of people, a date like, say, one that popped in my mind immediately, July 24th, 2010, was a perfectly ordinary day, and they probably had a pretty good day, but there was nothing really memorable about it. But as you know very well, for me and Ari especially, there is something very, very memorable about that day. And <laughs> I, I believe you were a part of it, and that was the day we got married. And if you ask me what the wedding was like, I could tell you several, several things. But, you know, you wouldn't expect me to remember every single detail of a wedding. I mean, I would tell me, well, so-and-so was in the audience. Do you remember that? No. I don't. Sorry, hon, I was too busy looking at you at the time to think about that. <laughs> and, and I don't know, of course, I, I suspect every guy out there is like that. I can't remember everything everyone came up to me and said and did and things of that sort. And so you could understand my being mistaken maybe on minor details. But if I got bigger details wrong, such as, say, even getting married or where it took place or when it took place, where then we'd have a whole lot of other issues, wouldn't we? Well, that's a good point, Nick. And, you know, there might even be some things that if you were to interview a couple different witnesses that um, you'd have confused um, or would need some harmonization. I, you know, you were there over uh, on Labor Day when uh, Gary Habermas, William Lane Craig, yourself, Nabil, and, and I were over there, and we were talking about that event of my debate with Shabir Ali, my first debate back in um, 2004. And Nabil, as a Muslim, was there. And as he puts it in his book, he's talking about that debate and what happened after, that we're walking outside, 
And Nabil makes that statement and says, um, you know, the only thing that Christians have over Islam is the resurrection. And I said, but Nabil, do you hear yourself on this? If all we have is the resurrection, it's game, set, match. Christianity is true. He said, oh, yeah, I guess so. Well, there was a certain way in which Gary remembered that and Nabil remembered that. Gary and Nabil remembered it in a similar way. I remembered it in a different manner. Gary and Nabil remembered it as though Nabil said it there and Gary's and Gary heard it and he just kind of laughed as well. And he says, yeah, the only thing is the resurrection. Right, Nabil, something like that. And I said, well, guys, I have to say, you know, I remember it a little bit differently than that. My recollection, and maybe I'm wrong on this. So my recollection is Nabil and I are walking out together and Gary and David Wood are walking ahead of us. And we're walking out of the auditorium. It's at night. We're alone, four of us. We're walking toward our cars. And that's when Nabil makes that statement to me. I don't remember it being to Gary or to David. I remember him saying it just to me. And um, and Nabil just kind of paused for a moment. And then I said, you know what? Could it be this way? Maybe my recollection is correct. And then I said, hey, Gary, David, check this out. Check what Nabil just said. And I said, Nabil, tell him what you just said. And that harmonized these things. And Nabil, do you recall what he said? No, I don't. In fact, I was the other thing. I thought that uh, Gary was the one who said it first to him. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think I was the first to say it. Well, Nabil said, yeah, yeah, okay, I remember it. It does come back to me. I think that is the way that it happened. So anyway, you can have some different reports that end up being harmonized. But then let's face it, our memories aren't perfect. And there are going to be occasions where we confuse details. We conflate them with another experience. Like I remember um, watching Kurt Schilling pitch in the World Series a um, a, a real uh, stellar performance, a heroic performance um, when he was on the Diamondbacks playing against the Yankees. And um, in game seven and uh, a game that they ended up going on to win. And I re- also remembered him pitching with a bloody sock because he had had uh, a surgery and it was bothering him. It was bleeding, but he still pitched and even with blood on a sock. And I was thinking that was the same game. Well, it wasn't. It was a couple of years later. He had been tra- uh, traded to the Boston Red Sox. And now the Red Sox were playing um, in the world, or I think they were playing the Yankees in the American League Championship Series, and that's when the bloody sock thing happened. So what I had done in my memory is I had conflated those two heroic pitching appearances into one, and I mistakenly thought it was they both were the same game when he was on the Diamondbacks pitching against the Yankees in Game 7. So sometimes we can make mistakes like that, but But even if that goes on, and it does go on sometimes in ancient literature, it doesn't mean the the stories are necessarily historically unreliable. Um, And and so when I define historically reliable, and I think that this is important, you know, what is it we mean by historically reliable? At the beginning, we said it does not mean divinely inspired. It does not mean infallible. It does not mean inerrant or authoritative. It doesn't exclude them, but it is a different question. So 
Um, when we say historically reliable, I think we should define that as being that the literature reports an accurate gist of what occurred. It gives us a true representation of what occurred, even if not in every detail. Uh, we could say it's essentially true. Or as Christopher Pelling, um, the classical scholar at Oxford, uh, he retired a year ago, but he said it's true enough. I like that. It's true enough. So I think that, you know, those should be our expectations when we think about historical reliability. And when you're talking, you're talking about all these different perspectives and such. I remember sometimes shortly after we got married, maybe been a year or so, Allie wanted me to watch a movie before. I think she said she'd watched it with you all called Vantage Point, where there is an assassination or an attempted assassination of a major figure. And the story is told regularly from the perspective of different people who were at the event, and you're supposed to piece it all together and find out what really happened. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That's all involved in it, in historical reporting. Yeah. Now, I was actually going to go to the question of oral tradition next, and so I guess we're already on that here. And you've got someone like Bart Ehrman, who's pretty much saying the kind of things that we usually find if we're engaging with skeptics and such today with the idea that this is kind of like the telephone game that one person tears their mother about Jesus, who tears their cousin, who tears a merchant down the street, who tears their brother, who tears their son-in-law, and on and on and on. And then that's how the stories of Jesus come about. Yeah. Well, there's no question that stories could be passed along in that un- in that kind of an uncontrolled and in an uncontrolled manner, okay? Um, The question is, what about the oral traditions about Jesus? You know, years ago, I remember, a few years ago, I I spoke at a conference in Indiana, and um, I mentioned about oral tradition, how it's not like the game of telephone. It's oral tradition back then, and in oral cultures today, was more like the... um, forms in the martial arts. They could be called hyungs in, in Korean martial arts or katas in Japanese arts. And that's when you learn various sequences of blocks, kicks, punches, things like that. Um, and a lot of these have been taught and unchanged from the very beginning of the art. So for example, you know, I learned the art of Taekwondo years ago when I was in grad school and, um, So I learned, I had two instructors. I had two very good instructors. And I, one of them ended up becoming a coach uh, on the U.S. Taekwondo Olympic team. And he still uh, teaches today. And then the other one was personally trained. And I would learn from him when I was home from school on my breaks, Christmas and, uh, and summer breaks. Um, he actually learned it. He was an eighth degree black belt and he learned it from the founder of Taekwondo. And so the forms that I was learning from that guy was, were taught to him personally from the founder of Taekwondo and he passed them along to me. Now I'm learning this, you know, in 1983 to 1985 and Taekwondo was originated and I think it was 1955. So here it was, I was learning 28 to 30 years later. My instructor was passing along to me what he had learned from the founder. And that's about what we have 
with Paul passing along the oral tradition to the church in Corinth and his various churches that he started, what he had learned from the apostles. And even in the martial arts, some of these forms go back hundreds of years so that students in those arts today are learning the same thing that were taught to students hundreds of years ago. So I, I would explain those. Well, it was interesting. A kindergarten teacher came up to me afterwards. She said, I want to tell you something else about the game of telephone. I play this with my kids every semester. And after they mess it up and they laugh at how different the end result is, I say, okay, class, we're going to do it again. I'm going to give you a new sentence here. And at the end, if you do not repeat it perfectly from what I gave to the original student, there's no recess today. And she says they always get it right. So the difference is now the students in the latter scenario, they have a reason for passing it along accurately. The first time they didn't. It's not a game anymore for them. It's something because they want to have recess. Now it's serious. Well, we've got to remember that the earliest Christian communities, this was, these were words of salvation. These were words of truth, the greatest truth that they knew, something that was going to, to give them freedom once they passed away from the, the Roman Empire and, and the brutalities of it. They were going to have eternal life, and it was based on this message. So they were going to guard this thing very well. And we can see uh, an example of this, like with uh, Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he is uh, repeating the sayings of Jesus at the Last Supper, the Eucharist Lagia. And we can, when you read it in the Gospel of Luke, was, which is written, you know, per, perhaps five to 35 years after uh, Paul wrote this, and Paul is giving oral tradition when we read Luke, who's writing later, and most wouldn't think that he's using Paul's letters as a source. So this, you read Luke's sayings of Jesus at the Last Supper regarding the, the, uh, the wine and the, the bread, and you see that they're virtually word for word, unchanged over five to 35-year period. They took this very seriously. So um, and you can see a separate oral tradition that's been preserved by Mark and followed by Matthew. Um, these oral traditions differ. So the words differ, but the message, what these words are communicating are the same. Um, and so these guys did did uh, give great attention to preserving the words of Jesus and the teachings with their integrity. And we also see Paul in what is it, first Corinthians seven where he distinguishes between his opinion and the Jesus tradition um, three times. So in, you know, he's talking about marriage and divorce. The first, he says, Hey, this is my opinion. The second, he says, not I, but the Lord, this is Jesus tradition. Then he says, not the Lord, but I, okay, I don't have any Jesus tradition to go on with this. So I'm giving you my own ruling and it's binding. It's authoritative, but he's very careful to distinguish the Jesus tradition from his own teachings because you could see that Paul holds the Jesus tradition in high regard. He's not going to alter it, at least the essence of what he's saying. He might alter the words um, because all the words are, for the most part, are translation of Jesus Aramaic into Greek. Um, so he might alter the words some, but they're not really going to alter the overall the essence of the meaning in that. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone before we go on that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. And everything we do here, it really is listener supported. And you guys out there, you have no idea how much we depend on you. Um, we're going to uh, do the uh, talk about how you can donate a little bit differently. I'm going to talk about the secondary means that you can donate first off. And if you go to our site, you'll find, for instance, a, a link to books that I've either written or coven, or you can just look them up on Amazon, books like Defining and Inerrancy, or a God in Natural Disasters, or Groundless. And you can buy those books, and I will get a small portion of everything that you buy. And if you want to get something for the lady in your life, you can buy jewelry through a store that we've got online here, and the lady who runs it, Lena Cluster, she'll be glad to help you out. Her word is love. And whatever you buy, 25% of that purchase will go to deeper waters. So, man, you can get something special for a lady in your life to make up for that past screw-up that you recently did. Or you can get something to make up for that future screw-up that I know you're going to make as well as I'm going to make. And I'd like to remind you also, if you can't donate, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a positive review of a Deeper Waters podcast, I check it pretty regularly. I love to see it. It makes my day when I see it. Now, um, Micah, since the way they can donate to us is pretty similar here, can you tell us how they can donate to your ministry and my ministry as well? Yes, they can go to my website, risenjesus.com. And there is, um, at the menu at the top, there is a donate button and they can uh, click that. It will take them to a page where they can, it's a secured page. So um, it's very, very difficult to be hacked. Uh, we use the Rolls Royce uh, program for that. Um, so they can go there, secured page. They can donate using their credit card. They can do a one-time donation or they can do it recurring donation. Set it up so it recurs on a monthly basis. They can stop it at any time. It's cool as if you do it on your credit card. Um, it's it's easy to do in that way, uh, and it um, you can get free miles for it or rebates or however you have it set up on your your credit card. But you you know you can get some kind of rewards for using your credit card for that. Um, if so, that's. That's if they want to donate to either of our ministries. They can go to my website for that. And all donations are tax deductible as allowable by law because we have a 501c3. Um, If they want the donation to go to you, Nick, then they need, after making that donation, then they need to send an email, which they can also do through the website, the same website, just as contact us. And just say that they just give their name and say they just donated and they want that earmarked for you. That was meant for you. And we'll make sure that that goes to you. Yeah, And also, people, if you want to get in touch, it's also just as a separate to get in touch with me on Facebook and tell me about the donation. I'll pass it on to Debbie, Mike's wife, who's a financial guru. And she'll be able to track down your donation and get it taken care of. And we very appreciate it if you can do this. Yeah, very much. You're right. We are, we are dependent upon don- uh, donations and generous gifts. And the end of the year is coming up here as we're in October right now. And, um, uh, you know, this is a crucial time for virtually all ministries. So yeah, we would appreciate any kind of consideration that, that people would give to us. 
when we're talking also about oral tradition, get back to the subject, I think one of the differences also is that we don't need to use our memories, which could be a very bad thing for us, as much as they used in the past. And what I'm thinking about is that yesterday I went out and I met someone who's a friend of yours, in fact, and you didn't know I was meeting him, but we were met together. We talked about apologetics and work I could do with him some and such. And I get out and I pull out my phone and I see the name Mike Lacona on my contact list. Push the button, call you. Okay, it sounds simple so far. Thing is, I suspect that for many of us, when we do this kind of thing, we don't know the phone numbers of the people that we're calling. We just have their names entered in, and that's all we need. We don't need to remember phone numbers anymore. And so what a shock that most of us don't have phone numbers memorized. <laughs> so when we compare it to the ancient world, they needed more memorization, didn't they? That's correct. And I, I couldn't tell you what your phone number is or Allie's or Zach's um, because we don't need to know it anymore. But, yeah, they they had a lot of memory was a lot more important back then because they didn't have things like Siri on an iPhone or, you know, voice recognition and things like that. They didn't have television where they could, you know, watch the History Channel or watch a DVD or, you know, they, they were because only 10% perhaps of literacy and books were extremely expensive, people weren't going to typically read books. So most people learned through oral tradition. And they had ways to help them remember things. Uh, today we would use things like rhythm and rhyme that we could see in some of the old songs, maybe not so much today, but in hymns, you had rhythm and rhyme. Um, but the ancients had different things too. They had kreya, they had chiasms. They had parallelism, um, creeds. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting to see. I, I memorized Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, um, October through uh, uh, March of this year. And it's the first time I've memorized Scripture in about 30 years, I'm sorry to say. But um, what a neat experience, spending time and doing that. Um, and then after memorizing it in Matthew, I went to Luke and, and read the same sermon but notice some differences. Not only is it a lot shorter, and most scholars believe that Matthew combined material from a bunch of Jesus' sermons and put it together in that one, that he really preached the Sermon on the Mount, but Matthew combined material from other accounts and put it in there. <coughs> Whereas Luke may have just had the content from that particular sermon or outline of it. Well, when you look at the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke, they're a little bit different than they are in Matthew. So in Matthew, you have eight, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, and all this. But when you come to Luke, you have four blesseds and four woes. And the woes are a reverse of the blessed, of the blesseds. So, for example, and I'm kind of making this up because I didn't memorize it in Luke, but it kind of goes like this. You know, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be happy. And then you get three more blesseds. Well, then you come to the woes and they're the opposites. Blessed are those or woe to those who are happy for they will mourn. And it seems to me that this could have been some kind of a mnemonic device, a device meant to help assist in the memory that you would have four beatitudes and then you'd have the four woes and the woes would just be the exact opposite of the four beatitudes, the reversal. And that would assist in memory. So, I mean, there were these different devices that they used back then to assist in their memory. And again, we just don't worry about those things today, generally speaking. 
because we don't need to. You know, we could say that there are some things we also do memorize a lot easier than we realize. I mean, I could get together with you and we could be driving somewhere. I say, hey, Mike, let me tell you this joke that I heard recently. And you could just really enjoy it. And then you're, we'll get to your home. I'll go out in my car and drive off. And then you're going to decide and say, Debbie, Nick told me this great joke. Let me share it with you. And you could tell it. And you know what? You wouldn't tell us word for word exactly like I did. But chances are you tell the same joke. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Now, something that strikes me also that uh, Bart Ehrman wrote a lot about this in Jesus before the Gospels. And yes, I think there's a lot in there that's very problematic. And I think a lot of scholars or tradition are going to have something to say. But he records this uh, account of a conversation he had with someone about oral tradition. And he asked about the raising of Jairus' daughter. And I find the whole account very suspicious, really. But the interesting thing I found most about it was that this was an account that had to take place probably about 30 to 35 years earlier. We have no eyewitnesses of it, we know of, except for Ehrman himself. And yet we're supposed to accept it as reliable, but his whole work is about we can't accept these kinds of claims as reliable. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of frustrating when you learn that you can't saw off the branch on which you're sitting and remain in the same position. Mm-hmm. Do you have so, any further thoughts on that? Yeah, it's like, it's like you pointed out, and you did a review of his book, a very good review, um, critical review of the book, and, and you're right. He just says things, well, but he goes back on one account um, where he's talking about how he lied to his dad because he was smoking in the house, and his dad came home early than earlier than expected. And, um, his dad said, are you smoking? Were you smoking? No, I wasn't. Well, Bart, I don't care. It doesn't bother me if you try smoking every once in a while, but I do, I'm bothered if you lie to me. And here he was recalling this, you know, about 50, uh, 40 years later, 40 or more years later. So, um, yeah, it would have been more than 40 years later. And like you said, with the other one here, he's, He's saying this as in a book where he is undermining the very type of memory that he's using to support it, one of his points. Mm-hmm. Well, to be fair, the smoking analogy comes from forged. Okay, gotcha. Well, thanks for the correction on that. Um, my memory failed there. <laughs> that the story that I was just told earlier, that definitely comes from Jesus before the Gospels. You know, if we... Uh, apply the same kind of scrutiny and such as applied the Gospels to every single ever form of ancient history that we have in other writings and such. We have very little ancient history, wouldn't we? That's, that's exactly true. That's exactly true. You know, something about the memory thing you point out, uh, you, you bring up. One of the things he brings up in his book and has been brought up by others is about the Challenger space shuttle and how they did, uh, you know, a study with some students and people who had witnessed it back then. I was a grad student back then. Um, and yeah, I think I was a grad student. Maybe I'd just gotten out. I don't recall. It was around that. Uh, I was about eight years old, so I don't really have much memory of it. <laughs> what, what year was it? Do you recall that? I think it was 89, wasn't it? 89. 88 or 80. Okay, so I'm, I'm out of graduate school. I'm out of graduate school. Um, gosh, I didn't think I was married at that point. So, um, but maybe I was, 
Um, all right. So I've got some, I can remember the day the challenger blew up. I remember where I was, um, 86, just 86. Okay. So it was right before I was married. And, uh, I'm guessing if I remember correctly, it was shortly after Christmas. Is that right? January of 86. And the reason I remember that is because I got a camera for Christmas that year and, uh, a Canon sure shot and I didn't like something about it. And so I took it back to where it was purchased at W Bell, a company named W Bell in Baltimore. And it's when I was returning it that I, they had a television uh, screen in that department, um, in the camera department above the counter. And I saw the news. And that's where I learned that the Challenger had exploded. Now, I was really into space at that point. And growing up, I wanted to be an astronaut. And, uh, you know, I was growing up during the um, Gemini and Apollo era. I watched, you know, as a kid, I watched them land on the moon, walk on the moon, all that kind of stuff. It was pretty cool. So I wanted to be an astronaut. So I've always been into the space stuff. Um, what's interesting, you know, in this study, they pointed out some people who they interviewed shortly after. I don't remember exactly how this went, but they recalled it. And then they interviewed them either months or a few years later. And they recalled the event again, but it was different than the first time. They had some conflicting details. And when they pointed this out, said, oh, well, we're right this time, not the last time. So they, there were a number of details where they got things wrong. It showed that their memory was generally uh, was unreliable in many ways. Um, well, what's interesting, though, these are pretty much students who were uninterested. It didn't really impact them. I'll, I'll bet the memory of people about the events of 9-11 will have been a lot more accurate because it was more personal to them. Um, but I'll tell you this. If you interview the family members, especially the spouses of the astronauts who died in the Challenger disaster, I'll bet that they've got those details down and uh, in a lot more accurate and thorough way than those disinterested subjects of the memory experiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think another big objection here that I'd raised is that we're comparing a modern individualistic Gutenberg in digital culture with an ancient group-oriented oral culture. And the memories are going to be vastly different between both of those. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if we have Arvis, and Arvis can show... Oh, one more thing, Nick. Let me point out something else here. When we look at the sources behind the Gospels, all, all this is kind of moot anyway, because it's not as like what Ehrman claims. Ehrman seems to suggest that you've got these recollections of Jesus that get passed along like the game of telephone, and then 35 or more years later... It's the, the story having been redacted all these times through hundreds of people who pass along one to another that you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, who had no relations whatsoever to the actual apostles who take what they receive after all these years, after passing through all those generations, um, you know, 100, 200 ge different generations of being passed along. And that's what they write down. Now, if that's the case. It shows that the preservation is pretty awesome over that time through all those generations, because the, despite any differences in the Gospels, which there certainly are, the similarities are striking. 
And one of the things I discovered through my looking at Plutarch and the Gospels and some in Josephus is that despite the differences we find in the way the Gospel authors report the same story, when we see Matthew and Luke reporting and using Mark as their primary source, or even the the common material between Matthew and Luke that has no parallel in Mark, we find that Matthew and Luke stick closer to their sources than Plutarch does to his. In other words, Plutarch and Josephus take greater liberties with how they report their sources than the gospel authors do with theirs. It is so different that one is struck more by the similarities in the reports than the differences when all is said and done. It's quite remarkable. And one other thing I'd point out is the sources that the gospel authors use Ehrman's contention there that it's going through these all these generations, 10, 20, 30, 100 different generations before it came to the gospel authors who wrote that, what they received down as last one, is bunk. The majority of New Testament scholars today go with the traditional authorship of Mark and Luke. So according to Mark, uh, with Mark, the early church tradition is that Mark— Uh, used Peter as his primary source for the gospel. That's really good. He's getting it from an eyewitness and and Jesus' lead apostle. According to early church tradition, Luke is getting his information from eyewitnesses. We also know that he's using Mark. We also know that he may have gotten some information from Paul. Uh, But he he also says he interviewed the eyewitnesses and he's using some, some decent sources The majority of scholars today, even though they reject the traditional authorship of the Gospel of John being written by John, the son of Zebedee, I think it was John, the son of Zebedee, but the majority of scholars do not. They still acknowledge that whoever wrote the Gospel of John, that Gospel author used one of Jesus's disciples, eyewitness recollections of one of those disciples as his primary source. So, I mean, just to to give you that, even if we discount Matthew, which I would not. I'm just saying we just don't know as much about Matthew, but we could say more about it, but I know we're, you know, going to run late on time here. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark, Luke, and John, we can show that they were very responsible in their use of sources and were only one removed, perhaps in some cases two removed, but in most cases, with all three of them, they are re- relying on eyewitness testimony. So it's not something that had been passed along through all these multiple generations before you get to the gospel authors. For the most part, they are getting their information from eyewitnesses. And, and so I, I think that's significant. Yeah, I think we could say with Luke, for instance, if Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, and I believe he was, and it could very well be that. Paul comes to Jerusalem and he's in prison there for a couple of years or so. That's a perfect time for Luke to run around town and start talking to people. Sure is. Yep, sure is. Now, something we often hear is that when we read ancient writers like Plutarch and others, they don't really hesitate to cite their sources, but the Gospels never mention their sources at all. Yeah. Well, when Plutarch and some of these others are citing their sources, on a lot of occasions, these are um, like, um, um, for example, for the life of Caesar and some of the others, we know that, or at least I should say classical scholars have a strong suspicion that Pollio, uh, is his primary source and Pollio, his writings are no longer extant, 
But for whatever reasons they're using, these classical scholars say that Pollio was Plutarch's major source there. And Plutarch, again, is writing this, you know, about 140 years after the events, maybe even some cases further. But like with Julius Caesar, I mean, he's writing this around the year 100, maybe just a few years after that, 105. So let's just call it 100. Caesar is, is assassinated in 44 BC. So we're talking 144 years to 100, 144 to 150 years later. He's relying on a source that, you know, is further removed from the event than the Gospels are from their events. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't even mention, in some cases, he doesn't even mention Pollio there. Uh, but that's where they suspect he's getting it from. I noticed you said they suspect that's where he came from. Is it the case in that our skeptical friends are wrong when they say that historians like Plutarch and such didn't hesitate to mention what, who their sources were? Um, well, I guess you could say in some cases they didn't mention who their sources were. Maybe in most cases they don't mention who their sources were. Um, but they do certainly mention at times, like uh, I think it's in the um, Plutarch's Life of Antony, I think it was. Life of Antony or Life of Brutus. I think it was the Life of Antony. He says that he heard directly from his grandfather that uh, when things were going bad for Antony, that he um, had Roman soldiers with whips conscript the citizens of the town. I don't know if it was Chaeronea, uh, where Plutarch was from. I, I don't remember where it was, but whatever town his grandfather lived in, that the Roman soldiers, by orders of Antony, conscripted all the citizens to carry uh, supplies down to the ships, and they motivated them with whips. So again, he got this information, he says, directly from his grandfather. So in some cases, um, he does mention his sources, but but not all the time. Richard Barkham, I think, makes a case that when we see a name in the Gospels, and it's a name of not someone who's a major, famous, prominent figure like, say, Caiaphas or Pilate, that the author is really pointing us to this is a person who's the source for this material. That's correct, the inclusio. And I remember reading that in Balkum's book and, and thinking that that's kind of interesting. I've never heard of this before. Did Balkum come up with this idea on his own about inclusio or there, is there evidence for it outside the, uh, the New Testament? And when I was doing my research with Plutarch, I was reading, I think it was um, Christopher Pelling's commentary on Plutarch's life of Caesar, which is just came out a few years ago. Great commentary. Um, and um, he mentions, I think it's in there that he mentions inclusio and uses the same argument. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Well, then this isn't something that just Balkum came up with, maybe for the Gospels, but it would have some parallels perhaps in the other literature written around the same time. Mm-hmm. I think we could be talking about different things for an inclusio. I think what he's saying is for first person named and the last person named, if they're the same, and that's the source. But what Balkum was talking about also was that when you go through the Gospels, if you go in chronological order, names are dropped, but they're not added. And one of the main sources I'd look at for this stories is the resurrection. Like, when we get to the end, 
that in John, you only have Mary Magdalene there. But ah. we, we know she's not the only one who goes there because she says she goes gotcha. says, we went to the tomb. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I see what you're saying. All right. I, I was confused there. Yep. I find it odd also when we argue with skeptics of the faith of our times that we're it, it seems like we lose no matter which way we go because you're here constantly where the gospels can't be trusted because they're not eyewitness testimony. You need eyewitness testimony. When you go and you make all the arguments show where, hey, this does contain eyewitness material, and it becomes, well, eyewitness material is not reliable anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, you run into the same problem like Bart Ehrman does. And I pointed out to him in our written dialogue um, that if you use the same criteria, you discredit your own arguments because it would discredit your own arguments. And I point out how Ehrman discredits his very own arguments by by the arguments. Um, But you could not say that there are any historically reliable literature from antiquity, maybe even today, if you use that kind of uh, uh, criteria or arguments that Ehrman uses. And I think from the time that he was interacting with Bart Ehrman on the show, Tim McGrew would say, be careful, down that road lies mythicism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can just become too skeptical. So, you know, in my current research and work that I'm doing on historical reliability, you know, I work toward coming up with some criteria that uh, do not privilege the Gospels, but do not prejudice against them either. Um, So whatever criteria we come up with for historical reliability, it's got to be something that works across the board for the Gospels, for Plutarch, for uh, uh, Suetonius's, 12 Caesars, you know, all these things, Cassius Dio, all of these, Sallust. Josephus's Jerusalem War. Yep, Jewish war. Yeah. So whatever we do, it's got to be able to apply across the board to ancient literature when we're talking about the genre of that time of of history and biography. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's fair. You know, in order to determine whether the Gospels are historically reliable, it's got to be something that is going to be used fairly across the board when it comes to ancient literature. Yeah. I'm not sure how much you've looked at this. And you're looking at gospel reliability of Ehrman, but do you think archaeology has been a friend of the Gospels? A friend of the Gospels? Yes. Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. Would you like to say anything on that? Well, I haven't studied it a whole lot, to be honest with you. I think Craig Evans would probably be one of the best guys on that um, because he has and he's contributed, I think, uh, in in several volumes about that. I know one that he's contributed in is um, book edited by James Charlesworth. I think it's called Jesus and Archaeology. But Craig Evans, just last year, I believe it was, came out with a book on, um, on archaeology in the New Testament. Um, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I did pick it up because I know it would be a significant volume. So that would be something I will definitely need to, to consult in my current research project. And if anyone's interested in finding out more about that, July 16th of this year, the book is Jesus and the Remains of His Day. And it is indeed a great read. I picked it up at ETS last year and had it read within a few days because I just could not put that one down. Now, one other thing that I think really makes the gospel so problematic and differently from different from every other piece of literature out there in many ways is miracles. 
And yeah. I mean, if a golf sports were not miraculous accounts, they'd be touted as the best history out there. What do you say to people who are skeptical of a golf sports because they contain miracles? Well, I think it's a fair concern. Um, and we live in an, in a society that for the most part looks down on the supernatural. Um, or at least a lot of people do, but that is changing. It's changing in my field of, uh, of history, of, or at least a field I've spent a considerable amount of time in, uh, where philosophers of history are becoming more and more open to the occurrence of miracles. And I think there's good reason for this. Um, you know, last couple of uh, lectures I've done on the resurrection and the last debate I did with uh, uh, Matthew McCormick on the resurrection, I spend time talking about uh, the supernatural dimension. So I'll mention things such as uh, paranormal phenomena. I'll mention things like Bruce Grindle, who was a anthropology professor at Florida State University and a journal article he wrote about into the Sicilia experiencing experience, witnessing death, death divination, death divination. And in there, he gives an account where he saw someone rise from the dead uh, more or less as a zombie, and it was only for a uh, uh, a few moments. So he he says he witnessed this, and it made him sick to his stomach. And it was something I spoke to one of his uh, former students, um, who said that this really bothered him for the rest of his life. He died in 2012. It bothered him for the rest of his life, uh, disturbed him, and shortly after the experience, he had been an atheist. He gave up his atheism when he saw this. I mean, how can you mean? maintain your atheistic beliefs when you saw with your own eyes someone raised from the dead as a zombie. I mean, I'd look at that and under my worldview, I'd say it's demonic possession of a corpse, temporary demonic possession of a corpse. But however you want to explain it, this corpse was revivicated for a period of time. Um, So you've got some experiences, paranormal experiences like that. Some of us would look and say, well, we may have experienced uh, had demonic experiences. I believe I have at times. Um, There are things such as well-evidenced near-death experiences. Uh, Gary Habermas, of of course, as you know, has done a lot of work on this. And he told me over the Labor Day uh, week that there are now about 300 cases of near-death experiences where they can corroborate information that the person received while dead uh, ended up being accurate and they could not have known it otherwise. In fact, he pointed, and I purchased a book that just came out this year, which provides a hundred of those. So um, you've got the, that, which would point to a supernatural dimension. Now I realize that of the tens of thousands of near death experiences that have been reported, uh, the overwhelming majority of them cannot be corroborated. And some of them have even been proven to be fraudulent. But that that says nothing about the 300 cases where you can corroborate things. Um, I also point to things such as veridical apparitions of the dead. You could call them ghosts or whatever you want to. Um, I have a friend. You know, I can tell a story about that. But she was awakened at 2.30 one morning years ago and saw the face of a friend she hadn't seen in years. It was illuminated and a few feet in front of her. It scared her. Yeah. And um, it ended up scaring her so much, she ended up praying the Lord's Prayer. And when she opened her eyes, the face was gone. Um, Well, she found out a day later 
that that friend had died at the precise moment that, that, um, that the face appeared in front of her. So I would call that an apparition of the dead. And then you've got radically answered prayers. Now that's not like, all right, I, you know, I, let's see, I had a lecture. Where did I go this week? Um, I had a lecture at in Hunt, university of Alabama in Huntsville a few days ago. So, um, let's say I pray, I drove there and I pray, God, get me there safely. And I get there safely. Well, did God answer my prayer or was this just a coincidence that I got there safely? Well, I'll never know. But then I've been a Christian for 45 years, and I'd say there are a handful of prayers that have have been answered in the extreme to the point where this is beyond coincidence. And then you could name them another, you know, most Christians have experiences like this. And so things like that, all of these point to a supernatural dimension to reality and render theism as far more plausible than atheism. And when you've got, because the supernatural dimension is not at home within uh, atheism, but it's very much at home within theism. So I look at that and I say, well, the supernatural does occur. So if the supernatural occurs, miracles are not so much out of place. Yes, they can be rare and should be rare uh, in order to be a miracle, but they're not so much out of place. And then I look at who Jesus claimed to be. And if he really was God's uniquely divine son of God who had come to usher in God's eschatological kingdom, I look at that and say, well, then there's good reason to believe that such a figure would be performing miracles and even a miracle such as his resurrection to confirm who he was and to confirm his message. Mm-hmm. Now, for those out there listening, I know that if you're like me, your ears always peak when you hear about a new book. And Gary did mention a book to Mike. In fact, he showed it to me. And the book is called The Self Does Not Die. And this is mm-hmm. actually a book by non-Christians. Yeah, I got the book. I've, I've started to read a little through it. And it's, uh, it's got some pretty interesting accounts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think there's really enough time to get into another question, unfortunately. And, and for people out there listening, I think we've only scratched the surface. Really. Any of these topics could have been worthy of a whole show, but I just want to get as much as I could out there here. Uh, as we start to wrap things up, Mike, do you have a blog, a website, where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Yeah, if they, um, you know, if interested in finding out more information or having me come speak uh, an event for them, they can just contact me at my website, risenjesus.com. Mm-hmm. And by the way, for those listening, when I mentioned my website earlier, you need to know it's been changed. We are at a new location. It's deeperwatersapologetics.com. It's much more easy to remember and such. Now, Mike, do you have any uh Final words you'd like to leave of a Deeper Waters audience today? Yeah, I, I, you know, I've met a few of you. Um, I met one of you. I forgot uh, your name, but I met you when I was in, um, I think it was Canada. Um, and she said she was a fan of yours, that uh, Nick, that she, uh, or maybe it was here in, in Atlanta. I don't remember if it was Atlanta or Canada. It was where? Claire? Yeah, I think so. So um, I know that there are people all around who are listening to you. And, you know, the kind of stuff that you discuss, Nick, is is stuff that's going to uh, interest thinkers, people who are given to thinking about things deeply. And um, 
So yeah, I'm just glad you guys are are tuning into the programs and um, uh, may your tribe increase. Mm-hmm. And please, along those lines, consider donating and leaving a review on iTunes. I love to see them, like I've said. Now, Mike, I'd like to thank you for coming on here. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. I think this is uh, this has been fun. This is a fun topic. Like you said, there's more that we could have discussed on this, but um, um, th- this was fun. Yeah, and I would have said we hope we will see you again here sometime, but we are. Next week, Mike's coming back along with Gary Habermas. I'm going to put these two in the hot seat and grill them on the resurrection with your questions. And if you have a question, get in touch with me. I'll see what I can do. For now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>